Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Our uh, sermon today is from Exodus 20. It's verses 18 through 26, and this is entitled, The Earthen Altar. Now, when I read these verses, just remember that we just left the uh, Ten Commandments, and I want you to think, why did God put this, this passage here where he put it? Does it make any sense to you? Um, 18, now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightnings, lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the uh, people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let God, let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by the steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The Lord came down on Sinai and he gave the Ten Commandments. After hearing his voice and seeing his splendid majesty so strikingly revealed, the people begged to not hear his voice any longer. He agreed. And from that point on, it would be to Moses that he would speak, and then Moses would relay the rest of the law to the people. No sooner had this come about than he began to relay the words of the law to Moses. The first words are to avoid idolatry, and then immediately came the instructions for the building of an altar to him for offerings. On the surface, it does seem a bit disconnected, doesn't it? But it is not. One thing follows logically after the next. The details are in the words, and the words are there to reveal what is on the Lord's mind. And so let's look into them today, and with a sense of anticipation, that we will learn more about his marvelous plan as it slowly unveils before us. Our text verse today comes from Acts chapter 17. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription— to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I will proclaim to you. 
Altars are found throughout the world because people throughout the world believe in God. They may have it wrong, but they intuitively know that he is there. In today's passage, the instructions for the building of an altar to the Lord are precise and simple. Why are we being told about it? What purpose do the details serve, and what can they tell us about our interactions with him? Well, the answers are all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is the spoken word of God, verses 18 through 21. Verse 18, now all the people witnessed the thunderings. It's not unusual for one sense to be applied to all of them. The sense of sight then is given to describe not only what was visual, but also which follows in the other senses, hearing, tasting, feeling, and smelling. Here, the thunderings which their ears heard are recorded in the sense of the mind's eye as being seen. As a squiggle for your brain, this form of writing is known to grammarians as zugma. It is where a word applies to two others in different senses. A funny example of a zugma would be John and his license expired last week. <coughs> Poor John. The word for thunderings is hakolot, literally the voices, rather than the actual word for thunder, which is ra'am. The idea of thunder has to be inferred from the passages in scripture where the Lord's voice is said to thunder. This metaphor for thunder is used many times in connection with the Lord and the sense of his power and his glory is seen in connection with it. But often his judgment is seen in connection with it as well. The thundering of the Lord in this manner was seen in the seventh plague upon Egypt, where we read this. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Elsewhere throughout the Bible, the voice of the Lord is noted, and it is often in the sense of judgment. A classic example of this is found in Isaiah 66. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast out, cast you out for my name's sake and said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice or the thunder of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. The people of Israel heard this terrifying voice and they shuddered. And along with the voice came more as well. Verse 18 going on, the lightning flashes, halapadim, literally the torches. From this we infer the idea of lightning. Interestingly, this word lapid wasn't used to describe the scene in Exodus 19. It is, however, brought in now to explain a portion of the marvelous sight which was seen by the people. The word has only been used once before in the Bible, and that was in Genesis chapter 15. This was at a time that Abraham received the covenant promises from the Lord. At that time, this was recorded. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch, that word, halapadim, that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. As I noted at that time, and again in Exodus 19, the two accounts are being tied together, that of Abraham and that of the giving of the law. 
the promise to Abraham and the Exodus, including the giving of the law at Sinai, are showing us the horror and the dread of the Lord's majesty. Verse 18 continues, the sound of the trumpet, ve'et kol hashofar, literally, and the voice of the trumpet. The sound or the voice of the trumpet can be used as the herald of good news or of bad news. The symbolism which we are seeing at the giving of the law is that of warning. Each law was spoken out with a terrifying display, and it was intended to instill in the people that these words are God's standard. They must be fulfilled, or there can only be the expectation of wrath. This is true with the sound of the shofar here and elsewhere. In Joel chapter 2, we read these words concerning the coming day of the Lord. It is a time of wrath on earth specifically for rejecting the way of the Lord. It says there, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come with great, come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations." Every detail of what occurred at Sinai speaks not of grace, but of judgment, condemnation, and wrath. The law was given to terrify the people concerning the absolute majesty of the Lord and the absolute perfection that he demands. Who can attain to such perfection? Surely we are all condemned by these words. The book of Revelation shows us that God's judgment will come heavily upon the world. This judgment will include the seven trumpets which will be blown to usher in the great and terrible destruction. This is the high cost of shunning the grace of Christ and deciding instead to pursue one's own perverse course. And this is why when we talk to people about the Lord, we need to explain to them that the law is what we must face if we reject his offer of grace. Adam Clark notes this about the giving of each of the Ten Commandments in relation to the thunderings, lightnings, and the sound of the shofar. He says here, they seem to have been repeated. Probably at the end of each command, there was a peal of thunder, a blast of the trumpet, and a gleam of lightning to impress their hearts the more deeply with a due sense of the divine majesty, of the holiness of the law which was now delivered, and of the fearful consequences of disobedience. He is probably right about this. Each individual commandment carries the penalty of the entire law. This is why James notes that to stumble at one point of the law thus breaks the whole law. In order to get the people to understand this, each command uttered was probably followed by the terrible sights and sounds. Verse 18 going on. And the mountain smoking. Ve'et hahar ashen. This is the first of only two times in the Bible that the adjective form of smoke will be used. The entire time that the law was being given, the mountain remained smoking. As I explained in Exodus 19, the smoke is a metaphor for wrath. With each utterance, the mountain continued to smoke because wrath, not love, is associated with the words. It is wrath at how man refused to even attempt to live in a godly manner, and the Lord knew that they would continue to refuse. In Jeremiah chapter 18, the Lord warned the people once again, as he had many times before. Rather than remember the terror at Sinai that they had been told of, or maybe because of the terror that they had been told of, 
they said it was hopeless. Here's what they said. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, This is hopeless. So we will walk in according to our own plans, and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his evil heart. What the people refused to see was that under the law there was also grace to be found. The day of atonement was available to them through faith. But Israel of old, like the world today, has rejected both God's commands and his grace. Again, the smoke was seen to reveal God's wrath at the sins of humanity. His standard is revealed in this law, which is endlessly violated. If only people could see that the grace of Jesus Christ can and will free them from this wrath if they would just receive it. Verse 18 going on. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. This is not the best translation of these words. Instead of trembled, it should say they moved or removed. The word is nua, and it means to wander. When Moses first went up the mountain, it became apparent that some of the people actually thought that they could break through and come up the mountain to where God was. Moses told the Lord that they had been warned, but he knew that they were going to push forward anyway, and so he spoke quickly and firmly back to Moses. He said, away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. The haughty arrogant attitude which was displayed before the law began to be given was quickly replaced with horror, fear, and dread. As each commandment blasted forth with its accompanying display of awesome splendor, the people backed up a little bit further. This is what is implied by the word nua. By the speaking of the last commandment, it said they stood afar off. Imagine the sight. The first commandment blasts out and the congregation backs up. The second blasts out and they back up a little bit more. With each new utterance, they continued to back up until they were completely removed from the mountain. The people of the world, all around the world, speak of someday meeting God as a friend. Maybe a pat on the back and maybe a question or two about why he was so unfair to them in their lives. If we understand who God truly is and the nature of his majesty, we would never speak in such a proud and overconfident manner. Instead, we would shudder at the day of our death, pleading for it to never come about. And the fact that man fears death should show him that this is written deep in his heart. It won't be a time of fist bumping, but rather a time of terror. But there is good news for those who trust in Christ. Probably thinking of this exact verse that we're looking at right now, where the people backed up as they heard the terror of the law, the author of Hebrews shows that there is a difference in the new covenant. Instead of removing ourselves from the presence of the Lord, we are welcomed to draw near to him. This is what it says in Hebrews 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Thank God for Jesus Christ who takes away the terror and replaces it with grace. Verse 19, then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. The voices that were heard at the giving of the law were so terrible that the people asked Moses to alone speak to the Lord and for him not to speak to them. Moses reminded them of this when the law was reiterated to them at the end of their wilderness wanderings. 
and just prior to their entrance into the land of Canaan. Here's what he said to them. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the same day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. But it wasn't just the people that were in fear. Their leader Moses was as well. In Hebrews 12, we read about that. It said, and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. The request for a mediator by the people and the fact that even Moses, who was designated as such, was terrified at the holiness of the Lord showed that a different sort of mediator was necessary. Moses told them that a prophet would be raised up from among Israel to fill this role. He would be able to speak the words of the new covenant in a manner where any and all could hear and accept it. The covenant at Sinai came with a display of fear and wrath The covenant in Christ's blood removed the fear because he received the wrath. As Adam Clark notes about this account, he says, This teaches us the absolute necessity of that great mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, as no man can come unto the Father but by him. Verse 20, And Moses said to the people, Do not fear. al Turau, not fear. Moses wanted them to not fear fear, but to have fear. There is a difference. The word here, yare, means to be affrighted, scared. They were to receive the words of the Lord, apply them in their lives in the fear of the Lord, and thus they would not have to be in fear of the Lord. This is what is implied here because it is made explicit in the rest of the verse. Verse 20, going on, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. The word for fear here is different. It means fear in a completely different way. It was first used in Genesis 20, verse 11 in this way. And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. God was testing the people so that they would have a reverential fear of him. In turn, this would lead to obedience and the avoidance of sin. Of importance is that the name Jehovah, or the Lord, is mentioned eight times during the giving of the law, from verses 1 through 17. The term Elohim, or God, is used to refer to him seven times in those same verses. However, in verses 18 through 21, only the term Elohim, not the name Jehovah, is used. What adds to this is that when the people mention Elohim in verse 19, there's no definite article. But when Moses refers to him here, and when the text refers to him in verse 21, both times there is an article, Ha Elohim, the God. This might sound like, who cares? But it shows that the people still have not grasped that there is but one God who is the Lord. Their failure to call him Ha Elohim, or the God, in the previous verse, perfectly explains why they rejected him and built a golden calf just a short time later. They failed to grasp the fact that the Lord is the one and only God. Instead, after fashioning the golden calf, they will say this at the base of the very mountain that they are at now. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 20, this verse says that the God came to test the Israelites, that his fear would be before them and that they might not sin. In one fell swoop, they failed the test, They showed no fear of the one they were to fear, and they sinned greatly. 
so much so that Moses knew what to expect if he did not immediately intercede for them. Here's what it says in Exodus 32. Oh, that these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Verse 21. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Here it says that the people stood me rahok, or at a far distance. The display had been such that they were completely terrified to come near to God. In Deuteronomy, a further explanation is given. Not only were they afar off, but Moses told them that they could now go home. He said, go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 5. While they departed to their tents, it says that Moses alone drew near unto Ha-Arafel, or the thick cloud of darkness, where Ha-Elohim, or the God, awaited him. As the people drew away, Moses alone drew near. From this point on, from this point that we're looking at right now, the Exodus account will have a dramatic change in its content. Instead of being marvelous stories of adventure, excitement, and wonder, there's going to be minute details and much repetition as the law and its details for its associated place of worship is explained. This is the point, and I mean this. I've heard this countless times in my life. This is the point where many people who pick up their Bible for the first time and excitedly read the stories of Genesis and Exodus give up. I'm telling you this now because the sermons during these instructions will also often be filled with details which seem unrelated to anything that we might expect to be useful in our walk with Christ. It's probable, and I mean this, it's probable that some of you will stop attending here or listening online, just as some people gave up on reading their Bible. But God's word is a unified whole, and it is important to take it as such. I have to tell you what, I read the Bible through again and again and again and again, once a week for over two years. And if I didn't do that, I would not have a complete idea of what the Bible is telling us. People stop reading in Exodus, and someday they pick up the Bible, and they go to Matthew or Mark or Luke, and they develop their theology, which is a faulty theology, because they don't have the whole counsel of God. I would ask that you would endure through the tedious because it's not tedious. You're going to see pictures of Christ. Every single sermon that I've typed for the next 10 weeks all picture Christ. And yet it just sounds like a bunch of legalistic laws. You're not going to believe what's ahead of you if you're willing to stick it out. For those who remain and for those who continue and they keep coming through the chapters that are ahead of us, you will have a far better understanding of the workings of God even if the time you spend is less exciting than it otherwise could be. So I will pray at this moment that you will be blessed as you continue to pursue the Lord's word from here on out. The mountain is filled with terror and overwhelming sight. There are thunderings and torches of fire ever so bright. And the sound of the trumpet has filled us with fright. Surely this is an awesome display of the Lord's power and might. Let us not again hear the Lord speak to us just receive his word and we will be obedient to it. We'll, we will obey and never cause a fuss. To his will and to his commands, we will submit. And when the Messiah comes, we will be able to draw near. Through his work, we will be spared and safe from harm. We will never again have terror or fear because of the comfort of the Lord's right arm. Our second thought today is an altar of earth, which is verses 22 through 26. Verse 22. 
Then the uh, Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel. After the terrifying display of the giving of the Ten Commandments, a new means of God's revelation is introduced in order to continue to bring his divine will to the people. He will speak directly to Moses, and Moses will then instruct the people. The words of the law were also recorded in writing, and so they form the authoritative word of God. There can be no distinction between the spoken word to Moses and then the written word from Moses. Please remember that. There can be no distinction between the spoken word to Moses and the written word from Moses. They are one in the same and they bear the same weight and authority. How terrifying the churches, ministers, and teachers throughout the world cannot see this fundamental truth for what it is. For us to misrepresent the word of God is to misrepresent the one who spoke those words out in order for them to be written. And even if the error is unintentional, it is still error. When we err in doctrine, we sin. How much worse then for those who intentionally abuse God's word, dismissing it as a book of mere human origin and one that contains only moral lessons for us to pick and choose from. Verse 22 continues, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. The words of this sentence are in the plural. The Lord spoke to all of the people, and they all saw that he had spoken to them from heaven. What is apparent here is that the words issued out in a way that they could not have perceived as anything but a divine source directly from heaven itself. And because of this, what will now be relayed to and through Moses to them bears the same divine source. They had asked for him to speak through Moses. He agreed, and now they were to accept the words from Moses as bearing that same authority. Do you get a picture that I'm, or an idea that I'm trying to beat this into you? The same thought? The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. He spoke from Mount Sinai and the people trembled. And they said, don't speak to us any longer lest we die. And so what did God do? He said, okay, I'm going to speak through this person and I'm going to relay my word to you through him. If you reject him, you reject me. And that is the same with the entire Bible. You take out one verse from the Bible. Women are not to be teaching men. I'm not going to have that in the Bible because I disagree with it. It's against my personal mores. You have destroyed God's word. You are accountable to God for your actions, even if it's unintentional. And I am going to beat this into your head as long as I'm alive. This is the word of God, and it is precious. And he expects us to listen to it because it is God who spoke it. Verse 23, you shall not make anything to be with me. Lo ta'asun iti, not do make alongside me. These words are a single proposition, and thus they stand alone. Rather than the words of the first commandment, which said, you shall have no other gods before me, these say, there shall be nothing alongside the Lord. This is to be taken in one of two ways. The first is to not have anything in parallel position to the Lord. In other words, there is not to be anything held in the same esteem as him. There is one God, Jehovah. This was violated when they fashioned the golden calf. When they did, they exclaimed, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The second way these words apply is that there is nothing to be fashioned which is representative of the Lord. In other words, when the Israelites fashioned the golden calf, we will read this. So Aaron saw it. He built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. 
in the first instance, the people placed the golden calf on the same level as the Lord. In the second instance, Aaron placed the golden calf as representative of the Lord. The wording in this proposition prohibits both of these cases. The first commandment in the Decalogue was one of honoring the eternal significance of the Lord. He alone is to be worshipped. This law now is one of proper means of worshipping him. The adoration of any images for any purpose is the very germ of idolatry. And this is why the actions of many churches, you look at the Roman Catholic Church with all of their idols all over the place, is so reprehensible to God. Though the law is set aside in Christ, the warning against idolatry permeates the New Testament as well. Verse 23, gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. This second half of the verse is its own proposition as well. It is used to explain the first. The words of the second commandment were more all-encompassing. These here are more specific. Gods of silver or gods of gold would be considered the most precious. If one were to suppose that they could honor the Lord with something tangible, well, the use of silver or gold would be preferred. But even silver and gold are part of his creation. To make an image of even these precious metals would be to profane the name and glory of the Lord who created them. Unfortunately, the rest of the Old Testament shows that these were actually the preferred elements for the idolatrous worship of the Israelis. Gold and silver are found throughout the rest of the Old Testament as the base material for creating their false gods. Verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me. In a seemingly sudden transition from idolatry to the law of the altar, the Lord states that it is an altar of earth which is to be made for him. One must ask, why this sudden jump from idolatry to a sacrificial altar? The answer is that the two are inextricably intertwined. As Kyle notes, he gives a pretty good thought on this. The altar, as an elevation built of earth or unhewn stones, symbolizes the elevation of man to the God who is enthroned on high in heaven. Lang then builds on it and he says this, most especially it is a monument of the place where God is revealed, then a symbol of the response of human soul yielding to the divine call. From the earliest pages of the Bible, man made offerings to God. The first was immediately recorded after the fall of man. Without any noted instruction in the Bible and without any recorded sin by man after Adam's transgression, we read this in Genesis chapter 4. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. In this offering, without any recorded sin by the boys, it is implied that man is fallen and this fallen state is inherited. In order to make peace with the Creator, offerings were made. This is found in all places on earth in all people groups. To ensure Israel kept from idolatry, especially self-idolatry or idolatry associated with the construction of the altar, the people are instructed to build an altar of earth. The interaction of raising to God in sacrifice was not to be defiled through any type of idolatrous practice. Verse 24 goes on, And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. The way that these would have been stated implies that these types of sacrifices were already in practice and known to the people. The burnt offerings, or olah, were first introduced into the Bible just after the flood. In Genesis 8, verse 20, we read this, 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the, on the altar. Burnt offerings are also seen at the time of Abraham as well. The peace offerings, or shalem, must have been known to Moses, but this is the first time that they're mentioned in the Bible. Shalem comes from the word shalom, which means to make amends. The peace offering then is one intended to satisfy the Lord and to bring about a sense of alliance or friendship. For this reason, some translations call them fellowship offerings. Verse 24 continues, In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. The regulation for the altar must be one which applies to either special or temporary occasions. The reason why this is true and certain is that Israel is right now at Mount Sinai. They will not depart from the mountain until after the tabernacle is constructed. And with the building of the tabernacle comes the place for sacrifices and offerings to be made. Therefore, the Lord is speaking of specifically selected places for particular purposes. One of those is recorded in Joshua chapter 8. Others are noted at various times and places in the Old Testament. Sacrifices were made at locations other than the temple. In 1 Samuel, Saul went out looking for Samuel. When he inquired about him, we read this. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. This would have been such an altar. It was to be erected in the way that is designated right here, even in the earliest instructions to Moses by the Lord. The Lord's words of this verse, in every place, means there was no need for an impressive altar at a fixed location. Were it so, it would imply that his presence was there and thus not elsewhere. Rather, he was present at any such altar where he caused his name to be remembered. The pulpit commentary notes this concerning such an altar and the Lord coming there and blessing it. The promise is conditional on the observance of the command. If the altars are rightly constructed and proper victims offered, then in all places where he allows the erection of an altar, God will accept the sacrifices offered upon it and bless the worshipers. And in order to accommodate the making of such an altar that would be more permanent than one merely made of earth, stone would be considered acceptable for its construction with specific conditions being met. Verse 25, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. A stone altar could be built rather than an earthen one, but it was not to be of hewn stone. The word for hewn stone or cut stone is an entirely different word than the word for stone. The word for stone is eben. The word for hewn stone isn't eben with an adjective attached to it. Instead, it is a single word, gazit. This is the first of only 11 times that this word is used in the Bible. And it always indicates that which has been worked by man being cut or hewn. To understand this word, we need to look at its root, which is the word gaza. This is a word which is used only one time in the entire Bible. It's found in the 71st Psalm. It says there, by you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me, took gazit, or gaza, me, out of my mother's womb. My praise shall continually be of you. The idea is that it is the Lord who fashioned us in the womb, and it is he who cut us from the womb. Our fashioning and our birth 
is a work of the Lord and not of man. So why shouldn't the altar be made of hewn stone? Well, various reasons have been given, but the continuation of the verse gives its own clue. Verse 25 going on. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. One theory is that by using an iron tool on a stone, it would profane it because iron was a taboo metal. This is an incorrect theory, which comes from a misapplication and a misunderstanding of Deuteronomy 27, verse 5. There it says this, And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not use an iron tool on them. The specificity of iron there is only given because it's the main tool that was used for cutting and shaping iron. Iron is found in rocks, and such a rock isn't forbidden from the construction of the altar. Further, this verse in Exodus says nothing about iron. Rather, the use of a tool profaning the stone is because the stone is something that God created. If man were to shape the stone, then it would include man's efforts in it. Thus, it would lead to either idolatry of the altar, which man had made in order to fellowship with God, or it would lead to idolatry of self because the man had erected the place where God came and fellowshiped with man. Either way, it is a picture of works-based salvation. It is man reaching up to God by his efforts rather than man coming to God through what God has done. He made the rocks. For us to add our effort into what God had made would then be contrary to the premise of the Bible. We are saved by grace, not by works. The erection of the altar itself cannot be equated as a work any more than the compilation of the Bible can be. God gave the words, man recorded the words, and through the word, man meets with God. Likewise, God made the earth, he made the stones, man simply arranges them into an altar, and then God meets with man. And in the specified materials and construction of the altar is a second intent, a picture. The earth, or Adama, and the stone, or Eben, both picture the human nature of Jesus Christ. He is the altar where man has a right to fellowship with God. The word Adama, or earth, is from the same root as the word Adam, which means earth or man. In Genesis 2, verse 7, it says that man was taken from the Adama, or the earth. It says there, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, Adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Likewise, Jesus was taken from Adam, being his descendant, and the second Adam. Elsewhere, the eben, or stone, is used to speak of the Lord and of the Messiah, verses which are then cited when speaking of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It is God who cut Christ from his mother's womb, fashioning him as he chose. Thus, to shape a stone for this altar would be to fashion a false Christ of our own choosing. This is the reason for the specificity of the wording. The earthen altar or one of stone pictures Christ who was alone fashioned by God. To hew the stones would then say that we are fashioning a Messiah of our own, rejecting the only true Lord who is willing to meet with man. In the end, it is all about Jesus, not us. His work, our faith. He is the stone of our help, so let us not attempt to carve out another in his place. As we progress through the Bible, we will see other altars that have different constructions. When we get to each, they will also picture Christ, but in different ways. God is slowly and progressively revealing the glory of Christ to us one step at a time. Verse 26, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar. 
Well, this verse seems like an odd way to end the chapter where the Ten Commandments were revealed, unless one understands the reason for the giving of the Ten Commandments. So what did the chapter begin with? The chapter began with these words, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God is the creator and the offended party in relation to man. The Lord God, or Jehovah Elohim, is the one who brought his people out of the land of Egypt. And if you paid attention and didn't sleep during those sermons, you know that Egypt was a very clear picture of the world of sin. Israel was redeemed from Egypt. Man is redeemed from the world of sin. There is a place where man may meet with the Lord, and that is through an offering made at his altar. And that altar is not to be high, thus requiring steps. The word step or ma'alah is used for the first time in the Bible right here. It indicates a step, things that come up, a high degree, to go up, etc. It comes from the verb ma'ale, which means to ascend. It is noted that around the world, and just think of you know anything you've seen on the History Channel, altars to a god are usually built high, some exceedingly high. The higher the altar, the closer one feels they have come to their god. Consider the Tower of Babel. We're going to work our way to heaven. The common thinking then is that the more imposing the altar, the more ma'alah you go up, and thus the more you will ma'ale. Said in normal English, one does not ascend to God in order to be saved. God descended to man in order for him to be saved. The term high places concerning altars of sacrifice is used dozens and dozens of times in Kings and Chronicles. It is a note of rebuke to the people of Israel. Even when a good king is noted for his goodness, if he allowed the high places to continue, a note of censure is placed on his record. Let me read you just one of them. And he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Good job, king. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. Bad job, king. For the people offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. Also, Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Bad job there, too. Good overall, bad because of the high places and a unfriendly alliance or an inappropriate alliance. When a king was specifically said to have removed the high places, it was a note of commendation. If you ever wondered why they were considered wrong, now you know. It is because it was a part of man's futile attempt to raise himself to God. Instead, the altar being at a common level with man is a picture of Christ coming down to our common level. It is through his sacrifice at our level that the offerings rise to God. Our attempts at reconciling with God are insufficient and worse. Our attempts at reconciling with God are sinful because they reject what God has first instructed and then what he did for us and what the instruction pictures, Christ. But Charlie, the last words of the chapter don't allude to that at all, do they? Just read them. Go ahead, Charlie. Okay, I will. Verse 26 finishes with these words, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. See, this is a matter of decency and not letting the people see your private parts. See, that is the explanation that almost every single scholar that you will ever read on not building steps to the altar gives. And it has nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing. In fact, they wore underpants. The priest did. So we know that it's instructed in the law. It has nothing to do with that. This verse is reaching back to the very first moments of man's existence on earth and all the way to the very last book of the Bible. 
the translation is correct, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. It is speaking of the altar and it is referring to the nakedness of sin. In Genesis 3, verse 7, just as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, we read this, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, a little picture of workspace covering up, right? And made coverings for themselves. Shame of nakedness is how sin first manifested itself. And it was by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life by which that sin came about. Man wanted to be like God, rising to his level. The altar was to be without steps because man cannot rise to the level of God. The higher the altar, the greater the sin is revealed, and thus the more nakedness is exposed on it. God instead made it known that he would condescend to become a man and meet with us on our own level, the earthen altar, which is Jesus Christ. In Revelation 3, as Jesus speaks to the churches, he says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. The nakedness of the body only pictures a revealed sin. Christ came to take that away and to cover us with his righteousness. It was he who hung naked on Calvary's cross so that we could be covered by him. What a marvelous story. And what a beautiful verse to end our passage today. From the first to the last, it is all about Jesus Christ. Writing about this most marvelous chapter of scripture where the law is revealed and where the sufferings of Christ are pictured, Matthew Henry gives us words to end our thoughts today. He said, this law, which is so extensive that we cannot measure it, so spiritual that we cannot evade it, and so reasonable that we cannot find fault with it, will be the rule of the future judgment of God as it is for the present conduct of man. If tried by this rule, we shall find our lives have been passed in transgressions, and with this holy law and awful judgment before us. Who can despise the gospel of Christ and the knowledge of the law shows our need of repentance. In every believer's heart, sin is dethroned and crucified. The law of God is written and the image of God renewed. The Holy Spirit enables him to hate sin and flee from it to love and keep this law in sincerity and truth, nor will he cease to repent. He is right. The law received at Sinai is what all men will be judged by. It is a terrifying law by which only condemnation can result. But God in his wisdom allows that the condemnation of sin can be through the flesh of his son on Calvary's cross. He is the earthen altar for our propitiation. Now you can see why the earthen altar is the first thing mandated by the Lord after the giving of the Ten Commandments. There was terror, there was horror, and there was dread, and the people removed themselves from the presence of God as he spoke. But at the earthen altar, the Lord Christ, pictured by the earthen altar of Israel, we can now draw near to God without fear, but in fellowship. It is Christ who is the center and focus of what we are being shown in the construction of it, his earth his stones, shaped by him for a place where the fear is replaced with fellowship. It is either there in Christ or God's wrath will fall upon you when you stand before him. I hope that you will choose wisely and choose Jesus. By God, I pray you will choose Jesus. Let me tell you how you can right now. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. That's it. 
That is all you need to do. I understand that my sin has offended you. You are the offended party, and I want to be reconciled back to you through the earthen altar, which is the body of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then you can repent of your sins, and you can do all those other things that people put before the salvation. Get the salvation right, and then everything else will fall into the proper place. I need a Savior. Our closing verse comes from Romans 8, where Paul explains the law in detail. We could just quote the whole book of Romans today, and it would help you understand what we're going through. But here's what he says in Romans 8, 3, and 4. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, meaning our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the earthen altar, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law that Matthew Henry just so eloquently explained might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Thank you for that explanation, Paul. Next week is uh, Exodus 21. It's verses 1 through 11. A little advice here. Don't beat your Hebrew slave until he ends up in a grave. It's entitled, The Law of the Hebrew Slave. That'll be our 57th Exodus sermon. All right? Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, and as I've said at least four times in the past four sermons, the law is the deepest of oceans. It is impassable. But even if that deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And he's going to do it right on the earth and altar, dry as it can be, because his blood was shed out of it for us. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a poem for you based on these uh, verses today. It's called Christ, Our Altar. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the trumpet sound, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off, not near around. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. This is the thing that we fear. And Moses said to the people said, do not fear for God has come to test you that he, his fear may be before you, and so instead you may not sin, that sin you may not do. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near, the thick darkness where God was, where Moses himself was trembling with fear. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven, and these words to you I do now tell. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves these certainly, just as now you have been told. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice it on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. To me you shall make these profferings. In every place where my name I record, I will come to you and I will bless you. This my spoken word. And if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. You shall be obedient to my word alone. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar. I do submit that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Oh, sin is tempting, especially the sin of pride. We want to work to God instead of trusting him alone. But it is he who did alone decide that with his chosen lamb, our sin, he would atone. No other way is possible for our reconciliation. It is only through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus and it is offered to all people in every nation, great and marvelous things he has done for us. And so we praise you, O Lord, our God. We will receive what you have done and not add a thing. We receive your grace here on this earth we trod, and to you alone forever 
will our praises ring. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, it's just so wonderful to read this passage. Finally, after all these years of reading it, never really knowing why it was there, and then to do a study on it for a sermon and to find out the absolute majesty of what you have tucked away there. And I hope many, many people will see this sermon and will realize the glory of what you have shown us in just a couple simple verses about an earthen altar, how it all pictures our Lord Jesus and how we can have friendship with you once again, fellowship with you once again because of the sacrifice that lays on that altar. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for everything that he has done for us, that you have done through us, through him, for us, through him. Thank you for allowing us to go out and help others in your name and to respect your word and to, to just be a part of this life that you have given to us as we pursue Christ each and every moment of our life. And when we stumble, as we all do, well, I know my father and my mother and my wife, they're here, they know I stumble pretty much every moment of my life. We all do. Forgive us, cleanse us, purify us, and lead us back to walking right once again. Help us to be patient with each other, loving towards one another, glorifying of you and all that we do, Lord. Help us to do these things. We do love you. We praise you. We thank you for the week behind us where we celebrated the birth of Jesus. And we look forward in anticipation to a new year ahead, wondering what you have in store. We love you. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul writes these words, those words, which he says, let me move this a little bit. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he be was betrayed, that's going to fall over, I'm going to have it going all over the place, uh, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, which he would have said these words, Baruch atha Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem, Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Before I say a prayer to close us, um, two things. I'm leaving right away. I got halfway through the sermon. I didn't even know where I was. I just. I hope it sounded good. Did everything come out okay? I, I am completely lightheaded. And uh, secondly, uh, Nicole and Mark last week, if you saw them sneak in, they brought in all kinds of bags of food, and it was really, really wonderful. I took a whole thing that you know, you wrapped it up in Tahitico, and this week, Rhoda and Sergio were at the house, and they bought us flowers for Christmas, so we still have fresh flowers, so would you take these home for your beautiful wife? Would you do that? Okay, we got those, those, and those back there. We got three of them, so just take all the flowers. And uh, thank you for last week. That was outstanding. Did everybody like what they brought? It was very nice. All right. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the fellowship that you've provided with such wonderful people each week here. We thank you for those that attend with us online, streaming or YouTube. And it really is a pleasure to be a part of such wonderful people. We thank you, Lord, for all of the goodness that you have just lavished upon us. 
we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. Be with us in the week ahead. Guide us and keep us safe from troubles and difficulties. But should they come, help us to endure through them, praising you even through the storms. All this we pray in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Amen.